fight to save arbitration. Will Congress take away your right to resolve disputes through arbitration without having to go to court and make a federal case out of it? In many, many cases, the pre-agreed to arbitration agreements are the only vehicle that that employee has. Legal reform advocate Victor Schwartz recently testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. One enters an arbitration agreement. It's quicker, much quicker. It is cheaper. People get results. There are organizations that are dedicated to see that it's fair, that people have due process. I'm Harold Kim, and Victor is my guest in this first episode of Cause for Action. Cause for Action is brought to you by the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, the leading advocate for civil justice reform in the U.S. and around the globe. Learn more at instituteforlegalreform.com. What's up, everyone, and thanks for listening. This is Harold Kim, Chief Operating Officer of the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform. And guess what? This is our very first podcast. And who better to kick things off with than Victor Schwartz or Professor Victor Schwartz to talk about the debate in Congress to eliminate arbitration as a means of resolving disputes? Now, Victor is known by many as the godfather of legal reform and a well-respected practitioner in addition to academic. I call you Professor Schwartz. Uh, when I was a 1L in law school, I had your casebook, which really guided me through torts and uh, was a very reliable tool. So thank you for that. And thank very... you, Harold, for not reselling the book, because that market, um, I want new books around. <laughs> well, Victor, uh, just on a personal note, how are you doing? You got into a car accident in Florida, of all places, and you're looking great, and you're sounding great. Tell me, how are things? Well, it's a miracle. I'm very thankful. A car uh, driven by an on-drugs driver smashed into the side of my light rental car. I was not able to walk. I was not able to move arms. I went through rehab, um, and even two months ago, I was compromised physically. So. I also couldn't talk, and when I spoke to the members of Congress, I said, now I can. And some of you might think that's not a good idea. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're with us today. And uh, just on a side note, Florida does happen to have a very litigious environment, especially with car accidents. So when you got into that accident, were you solicited by any plaintiff lawyers? No, because the driver who hit me was uninsured. And the greatest deterrent against a plaintiff's suing is lack of insurance. <laughs> well, the last time I was in Florida, I just couldn't get away from all the billboards that are saturating the highways, the freeways, everywhere from Miami all the way up to Jacksonville. They cr make people think they have a disease that they may not. The TV ads are filled with shock ads, uh, which could cause people, Harold, to not take their medicines and harm could result. Yep. They're really, the ads are frightening. Well, look, Victor, we'll, for another day, we'll have a discussion of okay. trial lawyer advertising. Sure. But for today, we're going to talk about arbitration. Now, just by way of context, arbitration is a dispute resolution process that's been around for nearly a century. Some would even describe it as the country's first legal reform as it gave everyday Americans the ability to basically resolve their disputes without having to litigate, which in today's world gets pretty expensive. And so in Congress, there seems to be a full-blown assault on the use of arbitration, 
where the trial bar has really looked at this initiative as one of their more important policy expectations, if you will, with this new Congress. And so uh, you were before the Senate Judiciary Committee testifying on our behalf at the, Inst at the Institute for Legal Reform. So tell us how you think the hearing went. I think it went well because there was no consensus as to what to do regarding abolishing arbitration agreements. Uh, and I felt that the chairman, uh, Lindsey Graham, understood more that you cannot look at arbitration in the abstract. Any means of resolution can be criticized. So there could be criticisms of arbitration. But if you don't have it, what do you have? You have the pitfall of litigation. Arbitration is cheaper than litigation. Arbitration is fair and not costly as litigation. And finally, when people say, oh, we should get rid of it, people should litigate, they don't quite get what goes on in 2019 in the litigation system, Harold. Sure. Plaintiff's lawyers don't take cases that are less than $100,000 or $200,000. Remember, their fee is a third. It takes hours to litigate. It does. Uh, the defense lawyers, like myself, it's crazy, but we get paid if we lose. They don't. So I think the chairman understood that. Other senators were just exactly where they were. Senators Whitehouse and Blumenthal will be against these things. The trial lawyers are a very heavy lobby. So there was no consensus, but I felt that the chairman's mind was open, and that was good. Well, so how do you respond to these arguments that we hear consistently from the other side, that these arbitration clauses are buried in these huge contracts and something that consumers just don't really know about? And we hear it a lot in the consumer context, but certainly uh, could apply equally with the employment context as well. And so... Uh, that is something that we consistently hear, and how do you respond to that? And how did you respond to that? Because I'm sure that came up. Well, people should be encouraged to read what they sign. If something is so obscure and so buried that the reasonable person would never see it, that can be nullified under existing law and deemed what lawyers and the law calls unconscionability. But if it's there and you don't read it, that's up to you. Society should not encourage people to put a blind eye to things they sign. And there's a lot of other things in contracts, too, that people should read uh, and realize they should sign it or not. It's up to them. Well, sounds uh, like personal responsibility, right? I mean, right. fundamentally? The trial lawyers and the fine senators, Blumenthal and Whitehouse, call it forced arbitration. Right. Somebody can sign something or not. And with respect to almost every goods and service, there is someone in the marketplace who doesn't have these things. So you're not forced. Well, I mean, from our perspective, if Congress does what the plaintiff's bar is pushing, it would seem like it would be forced litigation because you're cutting off an avenue of resolution and bringing more of these cases into state and federal court. I agree with it. It becomes forced litigation. And this is a very deep pit for most people. Plaintiff's lawyers only take cases first where there's a substantial amount of money involved. And I understand that. 
I was a plaintiff's lawyer. I'm not going to take some case where I cannot make my billable time. Did you say you were a plaintiff's lawyer? Yes, for about 15 years. Oh, well, see, now you have both sides of the equation, which makes you a pretty effective advocate, well, I right? I understand that, and I have no problem with that way of making a living. I think it's important for people to be able to have access to justice. But in absence of arbitration, sometimes people don't. In my lifetime, one of the changes I've seen is in how the contingency fee operates. Forty years ago, plaintiff's lawyers took iffy cases. They don't today. Uh, I didn't say this to the hearing, but I think the contingency fee should be called the certainty fee. Uh, people don't take major cases, we're talking about major ones, uh, unless they think they're going to win. Uh, so you have two factors that prevent a person who is, let's say the person earns $90,000 a year uh, and there's a dispute with an employer. That person is going to have a great deal of difficulty finding a lawyer. And unless his case is very, very strong, he's going to have difficulty. Yes, some lawyers bring frivolous claims, but these are minor claims. These are nuisance claims. Well, these aren't big ones. Certainly plenty of examples of these nuisance claims. There's ADA litigation. You see what's happening in the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, which is is a growing cottage industry of litigation that uh, could could be viewed as judicially sanctioned extortion in terms of how this litigation is brought and the demands are made. And so these these litigation traps are set, and there seems to be, you know, a, a new breed of players, if you will, who are pursuing these more exotic areas of liability. And unfortunately, you know, from our vantage point, it seems to be growing into a lot of different spaces. Well, you needed a law that pa a, a bill that passed the House many times called the Lawsuit Abuse Reduction Act, and it got stifled by trial lawyers in the Senate. And it, it always seemed to me it was common sense. That says if a judge finds a claim is totally frivolous, uh, he or she should make the person who brings this harm to an individual, and it is harm, Learned Hand said, after disease, but he's a famous judge in the past, oh, yeah. the worst thing opinions. that can happen to you is being in litigation. And there needs to be a remedy for those injured people who are forced into litigation on a claim that has no merit. Right. Well, if there was any silver lining from the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing that you testified at on arbitration, it seemed as though the chairman of the committee, Lindsey Graham, opened the door to examining class action reforms because he did seem to acknowledge that there were problems on that front. And so perhaps that becomes part of the debate uh, in the House or even in the Senate, because if you start opening the door to more class action litigation when you're shutting off arbitration, at the very least, you should be looking at reforms to the certification process, to the abuses that we're actually seeing out there when it comes to Rule 23. If I could have one reform, and this is just speaking for myself, in class action reform, it would be that the plaintiff's fee is based on what his client actually receives. It's a fundamental I learned in law school. We are supposed to represent clients, not ourselves. So the reward should go to both the client and the lawyer. There are studies that show that people get actual money that they redeem in class actions, something like 4% of the class action. That's very little. 
if the lawyer's fee was based on actual money going to the class action members, that would do a great deal to reform the system. Yeah, and we've had that proposal in the Fairness and Class Action Litigation Act that's moved out of the House last Congress, and um, hopefully that issue in and of itself can get revived in the course of the arbitration debate if there are, are any activities in either the House or in the Senate to move forward on some of these uh, proposals that we think are fundamentally concerning, but at least will open up a discussion on, cla on the class action reform front. Well, consumer groups should agree with this. Yeah. They represent consumers. Right. Uh, people to be in a class action, get all these notices, and you talked earlier about things to read. I have difficulty reading class action notices. They are in small print. They go many pages. They might as well be in some foreign Sanskrit. Um, people don't know what they're getting into. They don't know when they get that big paper about resolution what they're supposed to do. The amounts that they get are so small that taking of their time to read all this stuff isn't good. This is why arbitration is a very good alternative. It has to be fair. People have to understand what they're doing. The arbitrator must be neutral. And the cost is minimal. Uh, maximum amount of cost for a person bringing a claim is $300. Right. You know, I, I read a, a recent story in the Wall Street Journal talking about how company spending on class action litigation has increased for the fourth year in a row. I think it hit somewhere near $2.5 billion in 2018, which is up from about $2.25 billion in 2017. So the, the, the metrics in terms of the cost of litigation seems to be trending upward. So what do you think is going to happen if Congress enacts this legislation and uh, the trial lawyers get basically what they've been yammering for for over a decade? There'll be a substantial increase in class action activity uh, if that happens, because they have found this to be a path toward money. The settlements come about because companies simply cannot afford two things, the time spent in litigation and publicity. Plaintiff's lawyers are very good at getting stories out, probably better than defense. Sure. And the stories make it seem as if a company has done some horrible thing. Their stock drops. I've been right there advising companies where their stock has dropped and the value of the company is exactly the same. But some class action headline has driven down the price of their, the value of their company. Well, you know, Congress acted in 2005 when it passed the Class Action Fairness Act, and it was certainly consequential legislation at a moment in time to address basically forum shopping at the state court level. But it seems as though the plaintiff's bar has adjusted and they've evolved because certainly there is another area of class action litigation that has grown into so many different uh, fora. And uh, what, what's your take on that? Well, I think the Class Action Fairness Act, which the Institute for Legal Reform really was the driving force behind, has had a very good effect. It's put class actions in federal courts, a lot of them, where the judges are neutral. Uh, some state courts, unfortunately, the label judicial hellholes attaches to them. Uh, the one path for a defendant is surrender. Uh, 
that's the way it is. So the Class Action Fairness Act helped put class actions in federal courts right. that should be there. And there were all these dire predictions. Uh, there'll be no more class actions. People <laughs> are going to suffer. They're going to be dying in the streets. I remember I was at the hearings. None of these adverse well, things have happened. Well, that's where I got to know you, Victor, is when I was working on the Senate Judiciary Committee and my former boss, bosses, Arlen Specter and Orrin Hatch, that's when the Class Action Fairness Act was going through the process. And what was remarkable then was the level of bipartisan support that we saw. I mean, we had Chuck Schumer as a primary co-sponsor on the Democratic side of the ledger with Dianne Feinstein. And if I recall correctly, when there was the floor vote during the 109th Congress on the Class Action Fairness Act, there was a junior senator from Illinois by the name of Barack Obama who actually voted for the Class Action Fairness Act because it commanded such a, a, a large amount of bipartisan support. And it certainly helped that you had examples like Hilda, Hilda Bankston, uh, the pharmacy owner down in Mississippi who was incessantly sued in order to de defeat jurisdiction so that these cases can stay in state court. And so um, it seems like we're in a different time now, though. We are in a different time, although I, there's lessons there. Uh, victims should not be a monopoly of the plaintiff's bar. There are victims of the legal system that are individuals that are badly hurt by our current system, and having those people as witnesses are good. But right now, the plaintiff's lawyers uh, have, by investing in elections, a great number of people helping them. The plaintiff's lawyer's strength in the House is tremendous, and that makes the open, it makes the avenue of compromise very, very difficult to achieve. Well, what we saw with the Senate Judiciary Committee seems to be just act one of uh, what we anticipate to be more activity, at least when it comes to the arbitration issue, uh, given the number of bills that have been introduced on the House side. So, you know, we're going to have to buckle up for some advocacy here and convince policymakers as to the merits of arbitration. Certainly, the U.S. Supreme Court has validated that through a litany of decisions. Uh, Congress, in its wisdom back in 1925, uh, saw a pathway forward, and it has been proven, this being arbitration, as a solid means of efficiently resolving disputes. And I think it's incumbent upon us at the Institute, as well as you, Victor, and others in the legal reform community to really press that case, because this is a, this is a very critical issue in terms of where the trajectory of our civil litigation system could be headed in the next 10, 15, 20 years. It could really affect a generation of civil justice litigation. I think it's important to show the merits of arbitration, that it is fair, that it is efficient. Uh, take employee and employer. Litigation will result in that employee hating the employer. Hatred goes both ways. With arbitration, it's private. The person can continue to work there. His fellow or her fellow workers need not know about it. We should dis discuss and make clear the merits of arbitration. Second, and of equal importance, is to get rid of the myths. There are a rainbow of myths about arbitration. One is that a person who is subject to se sexual harassment in the workplace and goes to arbitration is gagged and can't talk about it. The fact is, every time a court has heard this, those gag orders have been held unconscionable. And I believe people should be able to speak. Uh, getting rid of the myths about arbitration is very important. The 
litigation system is held up as some heaven on earth. It isn't. It's a pit. It's long. It's costly. So dispelling myths and giving the merits of arbitration, I think at the end of the day, the plaintiff's lawyers are not likely to be successful. They tend to get the media uh, helping them. But uh, here, fairness may strike the media as uh, being important because they themselves sometimes use these agreements. Right. Well, Victor, thanks for joining us. Uh, this has been a, a great conversation. Uh, we hope to have you back in a future uh, podcast. But before I let you go, uh, I need to hear an impersonation. I, I still think your Arlen Specter impersonations were, were pretty epic. Harold, when you worked for me, <laughs> I used to have a little cowbell that I rang. Get Harold. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> if he didn't come on the fourth ding, uh, I would think of getting another assistant. <laughs> Victor, thank you very much. I'm Harold Kim, and thank you for joining us for this first inaugural episode of Cause for Action. We really hope that you got a little smarter today because it's time to get to work. Thanks again. Thank you, Harold.